This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Michael Lee, and today I'm joined by Amy Rogers to discuss the Court of Appeals decision in Plannan and Gilligan, together with its implications for enforcing restrictive covenants. So Amy, welcome. A colleague of ours famously describes employment law as heat magazine for geeks. Today, your job's going to be to apply that to employee competition litigation in the industry of facilities management software. How's that going to work out? <laughs> Hi, Mike. Delighted to be here. Very much looking forward to discussing Plannan and Gilligan. And what is not heat magazine for geeks, if not facilities management software? So Amy, in a nutshell, why should our listeners be interested in this case? Oh, it's a court of appeal decision on PTRs. What a treat, Mike. Who wouldn't be interested? More seriously, it's a, for those that don't have an obsessive interest in the law in this area, it's a relatively rare example of a decision on an interim injunction application making it up to the court of appeal. But more than that, the court grappled with a whole series of procedural questions that arise in almost any of these cases as to how quickly do you have to move for your injunction, what evidence should you be serving, what approach does the court take to that evidence, all of those day in day out questions where we now have a court of appeal judgment grappling with them in terms. So let's look at this in stages then. What's the way that a court usually would approach an application of this type of first instance? That's a question really with two answers. The first is that ordinarily restrictive covenant cases are bog standard American cyanamid cases, by which I mean the court asks first, has the claimant established a serious issue to be tried, which is a relatively low threshold on the merits? And if you get past that relatively low threshold, you then go on to look at a damage as an adequate remedy. But most critically, where does the balance of convenience lie? I said there are two answers to that because the second is that there are some cases where the court recognises that in practice the interim application will be determinative or practically determinative of much of what would otherwise be tried at a trial and goes on to have a slightly closer look at the merits of the case. I say slightly closer because it doesn't conduct a mini trial but in that type of case which often is described as the Lansing Lind case yeah. it will have a slightly closer look at the merits. Let's have a look at our case then, Plannan and Gilligan. I used to uh, have a lecturer back when I was young enough to be a student who thought the facts of a case were so important he'd fire random questions at us, such as the names of pets or the values of properties that were the subjects of the case. Perhaps without getting quite there, are there any key facts that we need to know about from this case before we get onto the meat of it? Oh, there should be more pets in judgments. I would very much like to know, did Miss Tillman have sausage dogs? Does Mr <laughs> Gilligan keep gerbils? A whole world of information there. Uh, no pets here, as far as I'm aware. Oh, dear. Uh, this is a case about software for facilities management, which even the Court of Appeal charitably described as a slightly niche area. So Plan on the Claimant is a Dutch company with UK business, and they provide these software services. So in a nutshell, their clients are public buildings, hotels, universities, all sorts of major office space, and they provide software design and installation services to those clients. And Mr Gilligan, the respondent to the application, is a former account manager. So he would deal with existing customers, he would be selling to potential customers. And critically, so far as the claimant's evidence is concerned, in the course of that, he had access to a wealth of confidential information about client accounts, business strategy, future innovations and so on. And just to help listeners contextualise this, what did the covenants look like in this case? 
Well, there was a suite of covenants in this case, but the material one was a non-compete covenant. So for 12 months after the termination of employment, and by reference to a series of complicated definitions, broadly, there was a restriction on being engaged or employed in a competing business. Anything unusual about a 12-month non-compete in practice? Not really, in truth. I mean, over time, 12-month non-competes have become more common. Uh, that's not to say they're always enforceable, but it is a period that you do see relatively regularly in contracts now. Feels like it's even changed over the last five to ten years whilst I've been in practice. Ah, that's definitely right. When I started in practice, you would quite often see three-month non-competes, six-month non-competes, and it, it does feel, this is a point, maybe we'll talk about this later, that uh, been raised by government in consultations recently, that perhaps non-compete covenants are becoming more onerous than they once were. So what were the key parts of the Court of Appeals analysis in the case? Well, on the substantive issue, the Court of Appeal said that the judge had erred in his approach to the enforceability of the non-compete covenant that was an issue in the case. But in fact, and unusually, that was the least interesting bit of the entire judgment. So let's right. just put that to one side for a moment. Uh, the things that are of real practical significance, let's draw out a number of them. First of all, there is a really clear reiteration of the approach that the court should be taking at the interim stage and the lowness of the bar when it comes to a serious issue to be tried. So there's a beautiful paragraph from Lord Justice Nugie explaining really that the serious issue test is designed to weed out cases that are frivolous or vexatious or so obviously bad that there's nothing to be resolved there. So in broad terms, are we looking at a strikeout summary judgment type test? Pretty similar. And you've sometimes seen in the authorities over the years, slight sense, well, actually at the interim stage, should you be grappling with what a covenant means and enforceability and the issues of law that go with that. And Nugie didn't shut the door entirely to those sorts of arguments in a clear case. But his emphasis was, this is an interim application. It's a serious issue test. You should not be getting into detailed and complicated points of law. Those are for trial. So is the Court of Appeal telling us to forget about the merits at the interim stage then? It's not saying forget about them entirely because that's unrealistic. What it is saying is remind yourselves as practitioners that the in the ordinary case, the American cyanamide case, it is only a serious issue to be tried that the court's concerned with. And by the time you're into a detailed analysis of what are the potential arguments on enforceability, what does all of the evidence say, you are probably straying outside that territory. I think it's quite an important reminder, isn't it? Because if I think about my practice, I'm struggling to remember a case that I've actually been involved in that's failed at that stage. I don't know if you've seen many. I've seen a couple, but they really are a couple in many, many, many years. I mean, they are the exception, not the norm. Almost invariably, a claimant can show a serious issue to be tried. And all the more so in the light of this judgment, perhaps. And that, that distinction between when is a case a standard American cyanamide case and when actually do you move into Lansing Lind territory is one that comes up, certainly I find, quite often because if you're two months or three months or four months into a 12-month covenant, when do you start to say the sands have shifted? But how often do you see employees saying, actually, we're beyond American cyanamide, the court needs to grapple with the merits here? I mean, you see it quite frequently, particularly, I suppose, in those cases where you've got shorter restrictive covenants. If you've got a three-month non-compete, you're almost bound to face that argument if you're the one seeking the injunction. I do think, though, what you were saying about what Lord Justice Nugie has to say in this case is a real pushback against that, even if you're in the Lansing Lynn territory. I don't know if you agree. I think that's absolutely bang on. I mean, not least because... 
as I was saying a little bit earlier, you've got to remember that even in Lansing Lynn territory, it's not a trial. All that is happening is the court is having a slightly greater look at the merits of the case and putting that into the mix on the balance of convenience. So it's not a sort of bright line point at which suddenly you shift from just a serious issue to actually having to make good your case in its entirety. It's much more nuanced. And in some respects, it's entirely unsurprising. You would expect the court when considering the discretionary question of an injunction to be asking as part of what's the impact of this? Well, if the impact is a bit greater because the injunction is going to last for longer, shouldn't I be more satisfied as to the, the foundation for it all? So that's serious issue to be tried. What did the Court of Appeal have to say on the other limbs of the American cyanamid test? Well, there's some quite interesting discussion of the adequacy of damages. And it arose because of particular factual evidence that the respondent, the employee, put forward here to the effect that the financial impact of an injunction on him would be vast. Concern that he'd lose his employment and lose the money that came with that, but then knock-on consequences, both in terms of whether he could pay his mortgage and the impact on his family, and also what was, on the evidence, support he was giving to his wife's family that wouldn't be possible if he were summarily out of his new role. So that's interesting, isn't it, because you don't often see that type of evidence in that much detail in these cases do you it's an often overlooked part of the evidence and that's absolutely right i mean sometimes you see a sort of single sentence saying it'll be very difficult for me if i can't continue to work but it looks pro forma and the court feels that it's pro forma whereas certainly on the description of the evidence here there is a very well flashed out factual case as to the human real world impact of the injunction the court was being asked to grant. How did that play out on the facts of this case? Well the court was very clear that it would be unrealistic to say that damages would be an adequate remedy for Mr Gilligan here. Yes of course he might be compensated for particular loss of salary payments but to suggest that that is sufficient and the court should almost without more therefore say well the employer is entitled to their injunction. The court said that's just not a realistic submission. When it comes to the balance of convenience, the court has to weigh in in that mixing pot, mixing metaphors there, all of the different factual matters that bear on whether it is just and fair to grant the injunction that is in issue. And that very much includes the real world impact on the employee. So the employer is not going to be able to turn around and say because it can pay the wages after the event if it loses at trial, damage is an adequate remedy and the court need look no further. I, th I think that's exactly right. I think the message from this case is that an employer needs to be realistic about the impact of the order it, that it's asking for and what practical effect that will have on the employee. That doesn't mean, of course, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for an employee to say, well, this will be very tough for me, because one answer to that is, well, you know, that's the contract you signed up for. But if you're fighting these cases, recognising that the question for the judge ultimately on the balance and convenience, is a broad one. And that judges are human, they will want to have regard to the human impact of the decisions they are making. Simply saying, well, I can pay the employee, there's no issue, runs the risk of looking too high-handed, too dismissive, and actually undermining the merits of the application. It's interesting. I think what you're saying is this isn't necessarily a change in the law by the Court of Appeal, but certainly re-emphasising an approach that maybe is underlooked in practice. I think actually the key to it is the point you were making to me a moment ago, that here there was a really effective factual case being outlined by the employee. Because very often in these cases, you move past the impact of a particular injunction on the employee because there is no case to that effect or it's being put only in very broad terms. Here, what's so significant is that case was being developed effectively and carefully by the employee. And the court recognised that that being the case, it's something that had to go into the mix. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you've seen Mr Justice Henshaw's judgment in everything and Gilbert Rolfe, but that was handed down just last month and really 
seems to build on this approach again perhaps motivated by that decision the employee in that case had really gone into a lot of detail and perhaps that might be a new trend it might be i mean i slightly reluctant to say that it will be a trend that will continue for too long because i suspect what will happen in practice is that there will be cases in which employees push this point too hard and then you'll have a couple of counter judgments in which courts are saying well hang on, the employee is saying X, Y, Z, but I have factor into this. This is a contract that they willingly signed up to and on whatever fact pattern perhaps weren't straightforward about their future intentions and so forth. So you'll see what always happens, which is a push-pull between the two different ends of the spectrum. It's quite easy to see a case in which a new employer is artificially obstructive, isn't it, and says, I'm definitely going to sack this person if they can't start immediately and that having the sniff of something that the court might not like. Completely, completely. And I'd expect judges to be alive to the the, the prospect that if that is what seems to be being set up, it is artificial. Just thinking this through from the position of the respondent employee, should they be seeking evidence from their prospective new employer at the interim stage? That's quite a complicated question because, like all things, it depends. I think certainly they should be seeking clarity from their new employer so far as they can as to what the position is so that they're not simply saying to the court... I don't know what will happen if this injunction is granted. They're in a position to say, if it's right, I have been told that my position will no longer be open to me if this injunction is granted. Whether you go further and actually put in evidence from the new employer, slightly damned if you do and damned if you don't, the risk of doing so, or one of the risks, is it looks as if the new employer is in fact standing behind you and closely involved with the litigation. And then you risk, at any rate, the impression that all of this is slightly artificial and being set up and the new employer taking a tactical position that they will say they won't employ you because they think that will help and resist the injunction. I think really this is one of those things where there's no one size fits all. You have to look at what's actually being said by the new employer and whether substantive evidence really helps that or whether in truth it doesn't add anything more to what the employee could say themselves. So key messages from this if you're resisting an injunction might well be to get your evidence in order for the loss that you're going to suffer if you have to leave your job. How might you address that if you're on the other side of this and trying to get the injunction? I think part of that is being very clear with the other side and the court as to how quickly you can move because all of those considerations, the impact on the employee, if you're talking about three months or four months from the injunction application to a trial, those points have real force. Whereas if you're an employer coming before the court saying, look, we will move heaven and earth to get an expedited trial on, we will do it as soon as the court can accommodate. If you tell us we have a slot in three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, we will be ready. Then the message you're giving to the court is, we recognise what is being said as to the impact on the employee, Probably we think it's overstated and, in fact, we think the cross-undertaking and damages will be sufficient to compensate much of what's being described. But assume we're wrong on that. In any event, we are moving and we can move to an expedited trial that means we're talking about a very limited time period. And that should give the court the comfort that what they're being asked to do is genuinely to hold the ring and not in practice to give the employer a windfall that will then go into the long grass before a trial, however many months hence. What about a modified cross-undertaking that involves giving ongoing payment to the employee during the period between the interim stage and trial? And that is interesting and it's something that does sometimes come up in practice, not least because uh, in some parts of continental Europe it's common to pay for a restrictive covenant. So you sometimes have clients with multinational offices saying, well, would this help? For me, I think that's quite a complicated question. I can see that if former employee is saying I've got a very specific factual issue that will cause me hardship if I don't have an ongoing income over the 
period X, whatever it may be. In one sense, it's tempting to say, well, you've got the cross undertaking after the event, but in fact, we'll volunteer to keep making positive payments. On the other hand, I think you've got to be a little bit alive to the optics of that for the court in at least two respects. One is you can't be giving and won't want to be giving the impression that you think you can buy a non-compete or can buy an injunction and simply say, well, if there's an issue, we'll put money on the table. That could, I can well see, play badly with some courts. Equally, you've got to be careful that you're not straying too far into the employee's territory and say, well, we acknowledge that everything that he or she says is right. There obviously is a practical human issue here. And by offering to make payment, we're acknowledging that and framing the issue in terms of that problem being front and centre. The truth is, it just isn't commonly done. And therefore, the first handful of cases in which it is offered are ones in which the counter submission will be made well that's a recognition of the problems with the application and the hardship that is being caused and I think for me the real answer is it's certainly something that's worth considering but you have to be very careful about the way in which you do it at risk of making yourself a test case aren't you exactly. I suppose exactly yeah. Just carrying through what you're saying about payment for restrictive covenants, it raises an interesting question about some of the areas for reform that have been discussed in recent years, and I don't know how you think that might fit together with this decision. Well, I think, in fact, it's consonant in some respects. So just in the last six, seven years alone, there have been two government consultations on reform of they love post-termination restrictions. They love a good consultation. And I think the second consultation is formally still awaiting a, a response. Both government consultations have reflected an underlying economic concern that the current law of restraint of trade goes too far and risks stifling innovation and preventing employees moving on to found new businesses become Silicon Valley on sea, whatever it may be. And the things under consideration have included everything from banning non-compete clauses entirely to asking whether there are appropriate safeguards, payment or the like. And really what you're seeing in Plannon and Gilligan and those aspects of the judgment we've been talking through is the court assessing, you know, actually, where do we draw the balance in that? I mean, for me, this judgment underscores that the common law is flexible enough to take into account all of those considerations without the need for statutory intervention or moving to the territory of striking down non-competes or anything of the sort. In fact, applying the tests fully and properly in a well-presented case, the court is grappling with all of the questions that the consultation is grappling with through the framework of the existing law. Leave it to the judge's discretion. Always the answer. So this was also a case in which delay with both a big and a small d loomed large. What did the Court of Appeal have to say about that? This is a really interesting part of the analysis. And I think delay was relevant in two respects. So let's deal with the easier one first. Although the court was satisfied that the judge below had made an error of law in his approach to enforceability, it decided not to grant an injunction itself on the basis that by the time that the case came before the Court of Appeal, seven months or so had passed. And uh, the analysis was, at this stage, balance of convenience really doesn't favour granting an interim injunction. This is now water under the bridge. Before we move on, does that mean that we should take away from this that there's never any point appealing an interim decision that goes against you? Absolutely not. No, no. I mean, it's quite difficult to work out from the judgment here precisely how the procedural setup played out. But there was, on any view, a significant delay between the first instance judgment and the case coming on for a substantive hearing in the Court of Appeal. I see. Now, my own experience in the right case is that the Court of Appeal can move very fast to get appeals on where there is genuine urgency. 
And I think the real takeaway is if you have been refused an interim junction at first instance, you want to be before the Court of Appeal, at least on permission, as soon as you humanly can get yourselves. And that means active and early engagement with Court of Appeal listing, getting your paper in well in advance of all of the relevant procedural deadlines, underscoring that this is an issue that needs to come before the court, both for permission and then for any substantive hearing, as soon as the court can conceivably accommodate. I suppose this could be a case that you could cite in favour of the need for expedition, a worked example of what happens if the court won't grant it. Exactly, exactly right. So moving to what I think you described as a slightly more difficult delay issue, what did the court make of whatever that issue might be? And I said it was a more interesting delay issue because it really does arise in almost every case. You know, as the claimant where you're dealing with breach of a non-compete or potential breach of a non-compete. You've got all of these different tensions. You want to have your case right. There may be internal difficulties, internal politics as to whether you actually want to apply for an injunction or not. You've got the balance between how do you ensure you've given the other person enough opportunity in pre-action correspondence to address your case before you move the court. You know, all of this goes into the mix and clients think, well, how long have I got? It's an awful thing to advise on because there is no right answer most of the time. Well, that's obviously right. And here, just sort of tracking through the chronology, Mr. Gilligan resigned at the end of July. By the beginning of September, at the very latest, it was clear that he was doing something that the employer thought was in breach of the non-compete covenant. I think the 2nd of September. Almost three weeks pass before a letter before action goes out. Then almost another month before really intensive correspondence claim is issued at the end of October so pausing there coming up to two months from the point at which the employer discovered the ex-hypothesis breach and they're in court at the beginning of November which is fully two months afterwards so two months into a a 12-month covenant and you've got a division of opinion in the Court of Appeal so Lady Justice always helpful (laughs) of course (laughs) Lady Justice Elizabeth Lang said well in practice, that wouldn't have been enough for me. The employer was doing what they could to uh, understand what had happened and to identify the issues. Uh, Lord Justice Bean, on the other hand, said, well, much as he wouldn't want to encourage the machismo of extreme, fast-moving correspondence, this is just too long. And the point he makes is, it's not that delay is a sort of technical bar, it's that if an employer genuinely believes that as soon as a a former employee is through the door in a competing business they will or may be misusing confidential information and all of these commercial risks would arise, you'd expect to see them in court immediately saying, I've got a problem, I need an answer. So it's not delay in the sense of you've unfairly dragged your feet, it's just delay in the sense of the thing that you're trying to stop has probably already happened, so what's the point in being in court? Exactly, or I suppose more practically, it's that you know putting yourself in the shoes of the judge that will be deciding this case and considering the balance of convenience, we all know that injunction decisions are impressionistic and a whole host of things go into the pot. And if as part of that, the court is thinking, well, when I read your evidence as to the seriousness of the risk here, I set against that the fact that it took two months for you to come into court to ask for this relief do I perhaps have to be a little bit sceptical as to the need for the order you're asking for, particularly if it has the impact on the employee we've just been discussing? But but I think the real takeaway here is, you know, in the Court of Appeal, you have two different views. At first instance, you could have had a judge with either one of those views, which means on any view now, looking at this, that two-month period, if you're waiting for that period of time without a very good explanation, concealment or the like, you can expect the employee to be saying, by reference to Lord Justice Bean's judgment here, it's just too long. You've waited. It's delay. So stepping back is too soon better than too late? 
mean, that again is, a, you know, never a one size fits all uh, answer. In general, yes. I mean, err on the side of getting in sooner than you would have wanted, but avoiding the delay arguments. But the flip side of that, obviously, is you don't want to be in court on a badly prepared application where you haven't got to the bottom of the facts, and particularly, which is often the consideration, where an employee is saying, well, hang on, I need proper time to take advice and to respond to you and to set out my position. That's the tension you have. So much is always going to depend, I suppose, on the position of the other side, and we never know what underlay all of the correspondence in a case that you weren't involved in. I realise we've covered a lot of ground here, Amy, but any other practical takeaways from this judgment? for people at home? Just one other point I think it's perhaps worth touching on, which is some comments that Lady Justice Elizabeth Lang made about the service of evidence. So this is a case in which, on any view, very weighty substantive evidence was served by the claimant applicant and there was a responsive statement by the employee and then, at least as appears from the judgment, further evidence on the eve of the hearing raising new factual issues and new factual disputes. And this is something that happens quite often in practice, partly because the lawyers for the employee are taking instructions at short notice and having to move fast. And partly sometimes because, and I'm not suggesting this was so in this case, but sometimes there's a sense that you get some tactical advantage by serving your evidence very late before the hearing. Well, there is a cautionary word from the Court of Appeal here in that Elizabeth Lang LJ says, well, it would be wrong for the court to place too much weight on evidence that came in at the last minute, which the employer has not had a chance to rebut. And an indication that, in fact, the judge should have proceeded on the basis that if factual disputes weren't raised in the initial responsive statement from the employee, the employee should be taken not to be putting them in issue. Now, in practice, I suspect this all gets subsumed by the broader question, which is what approach does the court take at the interim stage? And the answer to that is it doesn't get into issues of fact and disputed facts. But still, I think a word of caution there for those that might be tempted to leave their responsive evidence for the very last minute, you might just come across. Yes, and whilst there might not get into disputed issues of fact that go to ultimate liability at trial, some disputed issues of fact, for example, about the impact of the interim injunction on the employee might have to be resolved at the interim stage because there's no other time for it. I mean, that's right. And you also have a little bit of the analogue to Lord Justice Bean saying, well, if this was all so important to the employer, I would expect them to be moving very fast. You might equally say, if the employee has a really good factual answer to the case that's being made against him or her, or if there is an overriding factual reason why this injunction would be oppressive, you'd expect to see that being made at the first instance, not waiting till seven letters have passed, two statements have gone in, and then a final volley comes saying, oh, by the way, I've got a killer point. Sorry, I didn't mention it before. Yeah, if you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage if the injunction is granted, best to get that out there as soon as you possibly can, I suppose. Exactly. Or if, for whatever reason, it only emerges at a later stage, giving the court that context, I'm serving this additional statement late because I have just come to appreciate that XYZ follows, not simply saying, here it is. That was Amy Rogers talking to me, Mike Lee, about Plannon and Gilligan. You can subscribe to the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com.